Welcome everyone to Just Crypto. My name is Vanessa. Uh, as you know, Just Crypto is a show where we have honest conversations with creators, uh, builders, and artists from within the crypto community uh, and have a chance to dive in a little bit deeper into their personal journey uh, so we can get to know the people behind the magic. Uh, today, I am blessed to be here with a financial analyst by trade, crypto Jedi master, who's uh, making his way through the multiverse X. And so we can pass on what he's learned. Uh, Obi, welcome to the show. Yeah, thanks for having me. Glad to make it on here. I, I love watching it, and especially the the content on Multiverse X because we we uh, we need more of that out there. <laughs> yes, awesome, and it's it's great to finally get you on the show. I know we've uh, you know been connected for a little while. Um, before we get started, I'd just like to put up a disclaimer. So you know, none of this is financial advice. None of this represents anything uh, from either our employers. Uh, it's just education, entertainment. Enjoy, sit back, relax, watch the show. Um, but if you are looking for financial advice, uh, go somewhere else. <laughs> <laughs> cool. And shout out to chat as well. We've got a, a bunch of folks in chat here. I uh, want to say hi to Antonio, um, me, who was not the first to say first, uh, unfortunately. <laughs> uh, John, welcome. Uh, and who else we got here? Um, yeah, and we're all ready to go. You know, as we go through, if you do have questions for Obi on anything, any topics that come up or comments or, you know, just want to be snarky and chat, uh, that's always welcome. And we, we really appreciate you for being here. <laughs> um, so let's actually, let's actually kick it off uh, because, uh, you know, I know you've been in the crypto space for a little while and, you know, everyone's had a, a different journey. But, you know, I'm wondering if you could, could start with perhaps a little bit of your professional expertise, because you do bring a set of skills that maybe not everyone has uh, kind of in the crypto investing space. Yeah, so my backgrounds, I'm in finance and I work at a pretty large company. And so my, my background is really just looking at things from a financial analysis perspective and operationalizing uh, things background. So um, that's you know, I can kind of look at the technical side of things as well as the the numbers side of things. And that's inherently native to crypto. So it, it's a good mix of skills to have. Yeah, it seems like, you know, definitely useful in how we evaluate projects. And we'll, we'll talk a bit about that as we get further on to the, in, in the conversation. Um, but I'd love to, to learn kind of what drew you to crypto? How did you first discover this crazy place that uh, we all call home now? Well, it's a that's a long journey. Um, so I, I started out with really just kind of like a lot of us did in the early, you know, de in the early days of the early 2000s um, to 2010s. Like I was a technology enthusiast. I worked at a tech company. I, um, you know, like to watch tech TV and all that and was caught up in doing you know, building computers and doing rather rather. Uh, technical things, I guess. <laughs> and I was folding at home and I'd heard about this thing called Bitcoin. Folding at home was just helping the human genome project, dedicating some GPU cycles to kind of, you know, get things involved. And we used to kind of joke about this thing called Bitcoin. It was like, <laughs> oh yeah, yeah, you know, you should I send you some Bitcoin for that? Because it was worthless, you know, no one, no one cared. Um, <laughs> it was, and I just kind of largely ignored it as kind of a joke because I, I hadn't read the white paper or really dug into it. I, I think I Googled around like, how do I buy this stuff? And just like, well, you don't buy it, you mine it. I'm like, I'm already doing folding at home. I'll skip. And so I pretty much ignored it for several years until like 2016, 2017 rolled around. And then I heard people talking about blockchain and, uh, you know, I, was, I still couldn't wrap my head around, you know, what it was and why I needed to be, you know, learning about it. 
And so I, you know, didn't get in. I was like, uh, the forking wars and all that. I was just like, uh, I'll, I'll, I'll put it off to the side and care about it later. Was so Mount Rox really... ever part of kind of your visibility at the time? Or was that not something you were paying attention to? No, no, no. So I, no, I, I didn't really get to really deep diving into it and doing my due diligence until really 2020. You know, the COVID created some downtime and, um, you know, I was taking a greater interest to, over the last, you know, five or six years over, you know, like my dividend portfolio or, you know, in, investing in more than just your your ETFs or your baskets uh, into more individual stocks. And that led me to looking at things that were performing well. And that's ultimately why I started diving down the rabbit hole of Bitcoin. And, you know, I, I did a lot of uh, learning before I started putting capital into it. But I did get in in 2020. So that's that's when I entered the space. And then I started kind of trying to orange pill people and and say, <laughs> hey, this is really cool. Check it out. And then I got a few people interested. And and uh, <laughs> but then I started answering a ton of questions like because, you know, I feel like I was always the the tech support, you know, with my background. But now I became like the financial advisor type non-financial advisor <laughs> uh, and and uh so i was messaging people my, my phone was just going off and off and off so i started like this little group and i just said hey i'm going to put out the information that i'm looking at that i find useful i'll blog my my thoughts and then that's kind of how i started like this this little community and then uh crypto twitter was a good resource and then that kind of led me into um you know voyager which I got into in, in 2020 because I was looking for an inexpensive way to buy crypto because I was tired of like the Gemini active trader or Coinbase pro fees. And I was like, yeah. you know, let me, let me just, I want a way to easily DCA that gives me a lot of options. And that app was like, wow, this thing's awesome. And then, you know, a community sprung up around it and, you know, I made a lot of friends through that. And unfortunately, you know, the company isn't doing so hot right now, but that was kind of, <laughs> how the community building and how I got interested in crypto started in really um, 2020 when I started putting capital into it. And um, yeah, then I went into the DeFi rabbit hole and have been um, like doing the same thing, sharing my ideas along my crypto journey with other people. And um, that's how we met and, and uh, why we're here. Yeah, no, that's amazing. And I think we, we, uh, you know, met in, it's probably a, a VGX hero space, you know, back in the day, um, and, you know, you were all over the place educating people, you know, sharing, you know, not just about Voyager itself, but about the crypto market as a whole and, and what you saw. Um, and I'm wondering if we could kind of rewind to that that moment before you decided to buy Bitcoin and that kind of research that you were doing. Uh, like, what were you looking at? Were you looking at a lot of different coins? Uh, how were you evaluating crypto versus traditional investments? Like, I'd love to get into your mind for those particular thought processes. Yeah. So it was it was a. Uh... The whole concept behind it really was store of value, um, you know, decentralized money that was I, I'm very freedom focused. So yeah. <laughs> I, I, I really dislike the government and what I call Fed coupons or U.S. dollars. Uh, <laughs> and I wanted to I saw, you know, during the pandemic, how they were just debasing the money supply. You know, the housing prices were just skyrocketing. Stocks were skyrocketing. You could borrow money basically for free. Uh, the repo market went down. It's just it was just completely irresponsible management of the government. And I'm like, well, this is going the way of an Argentina or, you know, some of the way that these 
um, unstable governments run their countries. And I didn't want to get caught up without a backup plan. So my initial foray into crypto was um, kind of a bond replacement, but also a hedge against the irresponsibility of government. Mm -hmm. And so that you know, led me to Bitcoin, right? Um, proof of work. And that was my main investment. I started looking into Ethereum because Ethereum had a, um, a, a tendency to have a high beta against BTC, quote. So in other words, if you put money in, in Bitcoin, not only would it grow against the dollar, but you'd also be able to grow your Bitcoin stack faster. So yeah, and for those I, of you who, who may not understand, can you explain the concept of beta for us? Um, yeah, so it, an easy way to think of that is the, the, uh, the difference in price um, volatility between one asset and another. There's an easy, an easy way to explain it without getting too <laughs> crazy. That's good. And that's but, actually something you do uh, tremendously well. Uh, and we'll, we'll get to, to that later, but it's kind of taking something complicated, breaking it down so other people can can understand it. So that's a, that's a place I really appreciate you for as well. Oh, thanks. Yeah, no, appreciate it. It's, it's just kind of like, think of it kind of as a ratio and and uh, as a usually it's displayed as a decimal format. So the closer to one you are, the more correlated you are. You must right. have uh, heard, you know, at the time that there were people who were considering Bitcoin as essentially, you know, magic internet money, this great Ponzi scheme. Uh, how did you evaluate those claims in your mind? I mean, obviously there'd been price action, but, uh, you know, conceivably th there were people who believed that there was nothing to it. Yeah, um, that's kind of what I was thinking in the and before I decided to put capital in. It's like, oh, it's just why do I need e-money or a way to transfer value around the Internet when there's already PayPal? Like, yeah. It didn't make sense to me. Like what, what, you know, I got Venmo, I got PayPal, I got Zelle. What do I need Bitcoin for? I can still, I can transfer money around the internet right from my bank account. You know, I can buy goods. So the concept of Bitcoin is peer to peer cash or internet money. Um, it, it didn't click until I read the white paper and I read that it was more about that, that uh, protection against the irresponsibility of government. Mm -hmm. the head, that's really what it is. Um, and it's, it's peer-to-peer -peer decentralized open network and open ledger that is, you know, it's permissionless and it's immutable. And those things, as I started, um, you know, really being concerned about the direction of the economy and the, and the government, those became more and more important values to me and have really shaped my ethos in terms of investing over the last two, three years now. Fantastic. So, so you know, Bitcoin was one. You looked at Ethereum. Did you look at all the various clones, the the Litecoins and the Bitcoin Cash, and you know all the other ones that ostensibly had the, the same uh, trustless systems, decentralized systems, but you know obviously were very different than Bitcoin. Yeah. So the thing I liked about Ethereum was the programmability and the smart contracts and being able to have businesses and applications build on top of that network. I viewed that as an operating system. And, you know, I'm like, well, the Internet was built up of, you know, these protocols that largely don't capture value. And it's the companies that are run on the Internet that captured all the value. And I figured, well, you know, that's kind of that's why I wanted to get a piece of Ethereum. Um, shortly after using Ethereum, though, I, I quickly pivoted <laughs> to this thing sucks. <laughs> and so I, I largely got out of it because it just as a layer one network, it's pretty trash, um, especially when the network is being highly utilized you have to have extreme amounts of capital to make it worth your time and that's why you start seeing side chains in layer two or, or layer two 
I'll use that in quotes, uh, on Ethereum. <laughs> it's mostly just side chains uh, trying to offload the bandwidth. And that led me to kind of researching, well, what else is out there? And that led me to some Charles Hoskinson videos and some, some whiteboard financing that he would do around this thing called Cardano that he's starting. And it was peer-to-peer reviewed and it was um, you know, slow and methodical and it, it largely followed UTXO or extended UTXO, um, similar um, ledger system, let's say to Bitcoin. And so I was like, okay, all right, this sounds like you know, it, it, it isn't gonna have the gas problems that an Ethereum would have it sounds like it's more um, distributed and for the people, the staking is is a little bit more accessible. It's a lower cost to entry. They're trying to bring on the unbanked and they're focused on areas like Africa. And it created some diversity in, you know, maybe where some of my investments would be um, relating it to traditional finance. Like usually most of my finances are, are siloed in the United States because it's audited. It's, it's um, you know, the the leading companies in the world, but occasionally you want a little exposure to foreign markets and foreign investments. So you want to buy something that might be headquartered outside the United States. And I kind of thought, well, Cardano is kind of like a play on Africa. And that led me to Elrond as well, being a Romanian based, you know, Europe centric one um, with the same mission as, as a uh, Cardano in terms of, um, you know, reaching the unbanked and, and having an affordable way to, um, have people participate in the network and earn a yield, which Bitcoin didn't have. So that's, and I looked at the website and I looked at the leader, Benjamin Minku was very much like Charles. I think there's two of the more brilliant minds in the space. And uh, yeah, those were some of my earliest investments. It was uh, it was right when, when Elrond was moving from ERD to EGLD and before the Meyer wallet had come out and um, Cardano, I, I think I was, you know, started in like 10 cent range probably on that one. Um, and then another early one that I bought into was Theta. Uh, that was a content delivery platform with Stephen Chen, the founder of, of YouTube as an advisor with Samsung and Google, um, you know, behind that, I was thinking, wow, if they can come up with a way to get, um, you know, content creators and can maybe make a decentralized version of Twitter or YouTube, I could see that as a valuable product. So I was like, yeah. you know, just throw a couple hundred bucks or whatever at it let it sit in a wallet, see where it is in five to 10 years. And that's kind of how I'm doing a lot of my investing is I'm just buying and saying, let's see where it is in five to 10 years. If it's zero, whatever, if it's, if it's something great. And if the networks actually become usable to the point where um, you can start making money off of them, then all the better. And that led me ultimately down the big DeFi rabbit hole, which was Terra. <laughs> well, we'll definitely reserve some time to talk about Terra and that, that whole experience because I, I know you were deep yeah. in that and uh, we, we've you know had a journey there. Um, but before we get to there, uh, you know, I'm kind of curious that you you were looking at both Cardano and Elrond, uh, and ostensibly from a tech perspective, they're very very different beasts. Um, and you know, yeah. I'm wondering if if there was any pause that was given for either of those approaches being so different, or was it really more kind of looking at their target market as in Africa and Europe, and considering that the almost that the macro situation applied on top of it? I, I kind of viewed uh, Elrond as being better tech. Uh, I think the technology and the sharding and the um, the economics model more similar to what I would um, what I what I like. I like scarcity. Yeah. And it was more aligned with the Bitcoin economic model versus uh, Cardano, which was more about low price per unit and reachability for the masses. 
So I, I viewed e-gold as a better store of value and kind of like an evolution of where Bitcoin could be. Now it's it's obviously not as decentralized and secure as Bitcoin. So there's that there's that aspect that you have to be aware of. So I allocate my portfolio accordingly. But if there was something to take over Bitcoin in terms of smart contracts and tokens, I felt that in terms of a tech stack and a leadership team and perhaps a pathway to to uh you know, being that more decentralized play that I thought Elrond was the better of the two. Now, there were, there's a lot of coins that are in there that, that you haven't mentioned. Uh, so, you know, around the time there was Polkadot, there was Dogecoin, there was all Dogecoin's, you know, cousins. Um, you know, there was yeah. uh, Cosmos was around at that time. Tezos was, you know, fairly popular. Uh, was there anything about those that you decided not to jump in or was it really just focusing on a few and going deep in a few? It was, so... Uh, I did buy a couple of those. I got I got Cosmos pretty early, and I got uh, Avalanche pretty early, um, and that was just more of a diversification play on layer one blockchains. Um, my core thesis is that coins are over are better than tokens, and that you know thinking ahead to where the space might go in terms of regulation, I figured that with a base protocol layer one being something more like a, a an internet that that would have greater odds of passing as a ancillary asset as the, the Lummis Gillibrand bill calls it, or yeah. as a uh, commodity. Whereas I've, I very clearly think that the tokens are securities. Mm -hmm. um, and I didn't want to get wrapped up so much in tokens and that risk that goes along with uh, the unknown. And so most of my investment was focused on layer ones and then technologies that I felt that, you know, if you're, if you're investing in something like an Elrond, or you're experiencing something like the development that was happening on Terra, you look across at a, at a Tezos or even an early stage Avalanche or Cosmos, they weren't at the same level. Yeah. And so I didn't go, I didn't want to split my focus too much because whenever you split your focus, you become, you know, the jack of all trades and a master of none. <laughs> And it's really I should have hard. listened to you on that one. <laughs> Spread yeah. across 50 coins, yeah. <laughs> yeah, well, and, and when you split your focus like that, it's there's so much that's happening in the crypto space at such a, a fast pace that it's hard to keep up with one or two ecosystems competently. Yeah, no, that, that definitely makes sense. And, you know, you mentioned a thesis on kind of L1s. I'm curious how you see L2s. Do you see L2s more similar to a token or more similar to a coin? Well, I think that the term L2 or layer twos is one of the mis most uh, misrepresented terms in all of, of uh, crypto. Um, <laughs> Let's so, unpack that a bit. Yeah. So a true layer two is like the lightning network on Bitcoin. It doesn't have its own token. It uses the token and security and decentralization of the layer one. So it's a, it's a, it's a protocol and it built off of vertically up a stack as opposed to horizontally which would be more of a side chain so so lightning is a true layer two to bitcoin it's not its own um competing network like polygon built itself as a layer two to ethereum but really it wasn't it was a side chain right matic was a network was a side chain very smart would... on their part to, to build themselves as an l2 and, <laughs> and yeah, secure yeah, the was... market before people realized <laughs> Right. But it was total misrepresentation because it really was its own network. Right. Um, and, it, and, you know, separate from Ethereum. And, and that's what I feel like a lot of the ones that are calling themselves layer two on Ethereum are is yeah. if they if they have their own token, 
they're not a layer two. Because a, la a true layer two uses the coin of the network. It's a layer on. That's the easiest way to define it. Interesting. So by that definition, uh, optimism would not be a true layer two and Arbitrum so far could be a true layer two. Yes. Interesting. Interesting. Well, let's let's dive into, uh, in, into Terra and Luna. Um, and I'd love for you to walk us through your thought, thought process as you evaluated it, you know, from the financial analyst perspective, uh, what clicked for you as you decided to uh, invest in it? Uh, and then, you know, where along the journey you had some surprises through that whole uh, experience? Which, which one again? Sorry, was it, you say Terra? Terra, yeah, let's get into Terra. Okay, so, so Terra, um, I got into Terra really early when it was launched on Voyager. And um, it was one of those things where I was looking at um, decentralized models and I was looking at, okay, stable coins, right? You know, there's DAI, which is over collateralized, and then there's reserve held stable coins like Tether and USDC. But this concept of an algorithmic stable coin through a seniorage process was a unique idea to me. Again, because I had gone into crypto in 2020, I hadn't experienced the algos that existed before. And I like that it had real world use through Chai, which was a mobile payments app, much like a Venmo or a PayPal in um, Southeast Asia. And so I was like, okay, we have real world use case, which means the network isn't just code in an R&D experiment for some startup company. It's actual being used in, in the real world, which is important. And then it had, uh, you know, the, the thought behind it was that decentralized money needed a decentralized stable coin. Uh, nah, we can go into how that, you know, unraveled and, and why it ended up didn't working out that way. But that was a, an, an idea that intrigued me. And so it had pretty good state uh, stabilization of the peg. It was highly centralized. I didn't love the delegated proof of stake model. Um, there are things I didn't like about it, but the development and the, um, the ties to real world use that were happening on chain were some of the, the best development um, and community that I had seen across really any of the ecosystems and the tendermint technology that underlies um, Cosmos and all of its uh, side chains or, you know, their own technically their layer ones, right? Um, but they all can inter interconnect. Yeah, I guess they call another. them app chains or zones. Are their their kind of terminology yeah. for it? Yeah. So it was. So that technology worked really reliably, uh, and and the speed of development with Rust was far better than what you saw in Cardano. And um, although and, that applies just, to just about everything. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. True. And then they also had a lot of VC backing, right? So VCs yeah. were backing the development on the on the chain. You had Delphi and you had Jump and Three Arrows and Alameda, all these people pumping money into the system, which we now find out is bad. But <laughs> but back then it was like, okay, great. The people are actually going to invest in these developers. They're going to build something that can meet a real world need. And then there was a, a community that, that sprung up from that and, and around that model that was building and executing at a pace that really no other layer one network was achieving. Let's pause a bit about the VC uh, pumping money in because I, I think there's lots of diverse opinions here. Uh, you've got, uh, you know, the purists who would basically say, and many folks in the Cardano community are this way, uh, VC money is bad. We shouldn't have any VC money. Let's just ignore it. Um, uh, you know, you, you could also say that um, some of the folks you mentioned, uh, the reason everything went bad wasn't because they were funding projects. 
it was all the other shenanigans that were going on. And so it was really separate from VC money itself. And the VC money can help kind of foster an ecosystem. You know, I'm wondering uh, where you land today, having seen everything that's happened. Uh, do you think there's still a space for VC money within the crypto ecosystem? Or have we been burned too many times? Um, that's a good question. Um, I think that just like in Silicon Valley, you need venture capital. You need a way of bootstrapping and fundraising and incubating something before it can get to a point of profitability. And I view the that this really isn't any different than the traditional tech space. It's just on, on a distributed ledger technology, right? It's on a blockchain. So I still think that there's a, necessi a necessity to that. However, you have to be extremely mindful of the uh, who are the early stage investors, the seed rounds, the token distribution, the vesting cliffs, like the economics model really matters. And I feel like that's improved in crypto over time. But um, when you're going into investing in something, that's a big risk and you have to be aware of those items so you don't get caught up in just being a venture capital's exit liquidity. But there's no problem inherently in venture capital money or development being funded to build something. It's when they have a disproportionate um, control over the economic system where it becomes a problem. Interesting. No, I like that nuance. Um, so let, let's go back to, to Terra. So you've got the system. It's being developed. There's uh, you know, a lot of activity. You've got a lot of people in the space. Um, at some point, um, Iron Titan happened, uh, which, if you recall, was the Mark Cuban yeah. uh, algorithmic stablecoin that, that went to zero. And there was a bug in the smart contract and just all sorts of disasters happening there. Um, at the time, were you aware of that? And did that uh, in any way impact your thinking on Luna and Terra? Yeah, I was aware of that. I, I've watched uh, Cuban talk about it. And <laughs> I was also, you know, I had invested in Matic and uh, Harmony One is another one, just yeah. because I, I liked those as lower cap versions of Ethereum that had networks that you could, that the average person could actually use. And so I, I stopped investing in Ethereum and started investing in those those smaller cap ones that traded with a similar correlation to Ethereum. So I got the price action, but I also got the, uh, you, you, there's a little bit more risk in it, but there's more upside. And uh, they're actually very nice networks to use. They're a good experience and where I did not feel that way with Ethereum. So, um, I, so I was aware of it because I was tracking Polygon and Matic at the time. Um, it didn't have the same seniorage model necessarily that uh, Terra and Luna had. And it didn't, it, and those were just, they all were just completely just minted out of thin air. Um, the, the Luna ones, you know, yeah, it was minted out of thin air to some extent, but there was, there was funding behind it and a basket that, you know, behind it um, where there was actual capital and where the Titan one was, is like, that was just a, a button press. Here's a, here's a new <laughs> token, right? There wasn't any real yeah. world use or seniorage or um, investment that, that started it, I guess is where the big differentiator was for me. Um, and then it was over levered, which it became a problem, of course, with Terra. But Terra had mechanisms to it, too, around the time that were being discussed, like uh, Whitewell and uh, things to help defend the peg, uh, money that was being... Um, one of the concerns I had with Terra was the, the large allocation to the founding team and, and the treasury and the VCs, but they had all behaved as good actors in terms of, Hey, if there's something that's falling short, we're going to, we're going to move some funding into that to help it grow. 
And so they had been up until the point of where things went south, been pretty good actors in the space and helping support the space. And that wasn't happening on the Polygon side. Yeah. yeah, and I think you can even look at the recent audit that came out on how um, TFL and LFG used their funds, and they threw in their own funds as well to try and defend the peg. So at least as much as you trust the audit, you know, maybe they were continuing in that kind of good actor space that you you mentioned. Um, yeah. Let, let's go to the night of the DPEG so we can quickly move on past Terra. But I, I do want to get kind of your thoughts on, uh, you know, what happened happened there, how involved you were in it. And, you know, just generally how you felt through the entire process and afterwards. So th I think there's some very big strategic blunders that they made. Um, you know, Doe's arrogance, Doquan's arrogance <laughs> was a big factor in this. But they were moving to a direction where um, they would have a basket of layer ones that would backstop the, um, the stable coin. And would be redeemable yeah. for all the different networks that that Terra was moving to. Now Terra had moved to the 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 second largest stablecoin at one point, right? It was behind Tether, and it and it was multi-chain, right? It was on thirteen plus different chains. It was on centralized exchanges. It was becoming the go-to, and they had moved to. Um, getting into the curve wars and trying to adopt that pool with the Bitcoin backstop. And I thought those were moves in the right direction. But yeah. what they didn't do was have that centralized um, liquidity pool or peg stabilization for each chain that was adopting the coin. Hmm. And that was, its, or the token, and that was really its downfall. Because each individual ecosystem or exchange that was short would reflect on, from an Oracle perspective a destabilization of the peg of UST. And that created a lot of FUD. So if you had a very little amount of Terra on Avalanche or a little bit on a smaller exchange and it lost peg, they didn't have a quick way. Let me go grab mm -hmm. some more money to restore this peg out of a pool, right? Do some exchange. Whereas on the Terra chain itself, it was pegged. It was fine. It was these centralized and, and alternate blockchains that were really kind of losing the peg. But that instituted a fear of, um, whoa, whoa, this thing is unraveling. And the and that actually was the second large depegging event. The first one happened a year prior in May of 21, and where the peg had destabilized and unwound due to a lot of leverage in the system. And, uh, and this particular one was a reaction to the fear of what happened a year earlier. And that caused a bank run. And the bank run caused... A, a debt spiral to un, un, unwind and there wasn't enough capital because of the 21 day uh, you know bonding period and some of the um the lockups that had occurred that that there wasn't enough liquidity to stop the bleeding and that's ultimately what caused the the system to collapse interesting do, do you think it was attacked yes definitely I, th I think that it was uh, Alameda taking down a weakness in uh, what the, it, what they saw with what Doe was doing and what, what Three Arrows were doing and how they had um, too much liquidity locked up in Lido, too much liquidity locked up in TFL or in the, uh, what was, what do they call it? The Luna Foundation Guard, the LFG. Yeah. So um, they, they saw an opportunity through fraud because they had, <laughs> you know, they were trading fraudulent money, which we didn't learn about until recently. Um but they had used fraudulent and mal, mal intent practices to effectively take down 
the ecosystem. And we can go down conspiracy theory rat hole if you want, but I, I believe that was the um, three-letter governments and international entities that were ultimately behind that. So, you know, I know throughout the time that you were, you know, very active, you know, sharing um, what's happening with, with Luna, the opportunities that were available in Luna and kind of cultivating in the community, uh, you know, not that you should have responsibility for anyone's decision, right? Everyone is their own actor here. But I'm curious how you felt after it all fell apart in terms of uh, your role as an educator and a leader in the community. Yeah, I, I, I just always view it as that. It's just it's reporting the news or providing analysis to the news and letting people make their own decisions. Um, I, I think, you know, when things started to go south and, and there were risks involved, I, I definitely said, Hey, I'm getting out. And, you know, I don't think you should put money yeah. into things, but, you know, do what you want. <laughs> um, <laughs> and then some people felt very strongly that, Hey, it's crypto. And when things get overly flooded and, and crash, you throw money in. oftentimes you can, get a short-term bounce back. And some people decided to do that and others didn't, but I was just like, I'm, I'm done. I'm not putting any more capital into something. I have to see the dust clear uh, because the thing that worried me the most about Terra and was the leverage. It was the looping uh, anchor protocol and the VCs and, and the tokens being locked up. And I learned a lot of lessons from that experience that I can now use as learning experiences to not repeat those issues going forward. That's good. I think I still need to learn them as I keep buying my Luna. <laughs> Let's go to chat and just say hi to a few new folks that, that popped in. Um, uh, Matthew, hi. It's great to have you here. Um, Duke Newcomb, welcome. <laughs> great to have you here as well. Um, and we did have a question from Antonio. I know it's a little bit off path, but, uh, you know, let's stop and take a look. Uh, he's asking, what is Yearn Finance and, and why did that go up so high? Oh, so funny thing, urine was actually one of the things that I got into super early in crypto, like right right after buying Bitcoin and Ethereum and Cardano, I think urine might have been right there with them. Um, and I got it mostly because of the low supply, um, decentralized vault idea of, of yield farming, essentially. Um, now, Andre Cornier left, you know, that is supposed to always be meant as a governance token, so when I bought it, I didn't quite understand it. And then I realized that, Hey, this is just built on the greater fool theory. So I got out of it real fast, <laughs> but, um, but you're in finance is effectively just a, a place where you go and you park some assets and then they will find the most efficient ways to gain yield. And then that comes back to you. So in terms of the token, YFI, I don't, I wouldn't, I wouldn't mess with it, but in terms of, if you want to use the, the, the vaults, um, I haven't kept up with the development, so you'd have to check and see if they're still developing and they're still um, making improvements. But in general, um, I would say, as with everything in DeFi, proceed with caution, right? Make sure it's audited. Make sure that um, make sure that you're getting into pools that have liquidity and they're not super shallow. And uh, don't get sucked in by uh, high yield promises because high yields are usually generated via fraud or, or, uh, <laughs> or, you know, fake yield, right? You want, you want real yield. You want yield that's associated with the product and, and adoption as opposed to just a, a money printer. Cause that's no better than what's going on in the traditional system with the dollar. 
Yeah, very, very well said. Uh, if you do have any questions for Obi, please pop them in chat. And then we've got a couple of folks here. Um, but I, I did want to stop a bit on uh, what you said about the greater fools theory. Um, how do you differentiate coins and tokens that are really leaning on the greater fools theory versus those that are, you know, actually have some substance to them? Yeah, it, it comes down to some of the characteristics. Um, you know, a lot of times with the greater fool theories, what, what you see are these tokens that have really low price per unit. They're, you know, uh, people get in because they can buy a bunch of them. And then, you know, the, the people that get in early get out and then people are left you know, holding the bag. Um, so usually it's an economics model as the first flag. Like when things have a high token count that aren't associated with some form of real yield. That would be a huge red flag. Um, but greater fool theory is just basically who's the greater fool, the, the person who's investing in something or the person who's investing in something last, right? Um, so so uh, I think uh, a token that may qualify under your greater, greater fool's theory right now uh, would be the Luna Classic. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Just And you can argue a lot of things are kind of based off of that, right? I mean, you could even argue to some extent Bitcoin. But, you know, but if you're just viewing it as a number go up speculative investment as opposed to the, the value it provides uh, in terms of, uh, you know, liberty and decentralization of peer to peer money. So we've touched a bit on DeFi and kind of the biggest DeFi blow up. Uh, let's spend a little time on CeFi. Um, now, you know, you're in the, the Voyager community. I'm curious if you were in any other kind of centralized plays um, that were offering yield or was Voyager kind of the primary one? Forager was the primary one, but I, I also had a little bit of, so I was, okay, so I'm an, admittedly a little bit of a yield junkie, or I used to be, not anymore. <laughs> um, so I would kind of park some money in whatever platform had the most yield as a passive play, because I have, most of my portfolio is Bitcoin, and that doesn't generate a yield. But there were a few platforms that were offering yield for a little bit of risk. So I put a little bit of money of my portfolio into the into the platforms and have them grow so that I'd have, you know, some additional uh, coins, right. Or some tokens. And so as part of that, I got caught up in um, Celsius for taking loans or for getting yield. Same thing with Voyager. Um, I even was in, did BlockFi initially on, I kind of tested the different platforms out. Yeah. Partially because of the yield junkie aspect, but also partially as I wanted to be as someone who was getting a lot of questions I could have firsthand experience doing some of the things that other people were asking me questions about. So I've I've downloaded so many different wallets and done so many different blockchains and platforms, you know, even if I don't actually fund them or use them actively, at least I can kind of know what people are looking at and kind of answer some questions. Yeah. Maybe but, 10 years from now, there's a forgotten wallet that'll have uh, something meaningful in, in some random maybe, platform. <laughs> maybe. But, you know, we, as we know now, the centralized platforms are not your friend. And, uh, you know, with the FTX example and the VCs, it was it was massive fraud. And, and yield is not something native to crypto unless it's in a proof of stake um, coin where you're participating in the security of the network. Yeah. So uh, you got to be really cautious about any kind of yield. Um, especially on something that's deflationary, has a fixed supply. Um, you know, the, the yield isn't worth it. It's not worth it. Because if you buy something scarce and you hold on to it, um, the, the more that particular um, thing becomes desirable, it's going to go up in value. 
it's that's like you know what would you rather own would you rather own the picasso uh piece of art or would you rather own a print of it and there's mm -hmm. thousands of prints of it well if you if you want to own it for an investment you want the original if you want to own it just because you appreciate the artwork you buy a print and put it up yeah i think that makes a lot of sense um so you know cfi largely has failed if we look back over the last you know six months um, and yet the refrain from people is self-custody, you know, put everything into self-custody, not your, not your uh, keys, not your coins. Um, before we get to self-custody in particular, you know, I'm curious how, what you would say to folks who maybe answer, yeah, but it's really complicated and I don't trust myself. And there's all sorts of things about self-custody that I'm worried about. What, what should these folks do? Uh, they should educate themselves. Uh, I think that the whole argument of self-custody being complicated doesn't really hold a whole lot of uh, weight with me because a lot of people figured out how to trade monkey pictures by getting a MetaMask <laughs> and buying Ethereum and funding it and, and going on to OpenSea. So if you can do that, hey, newsflash, you're in self-custody. So, <laughs> um, You're just going to give reason, people a reason to do it, monkey pictures. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean... For I would say, you know, if you're a millennial or younger, it's going to be pretty native to you because you've grown up with technology yeah. and Internet and apps on a phone and figuring that out. It, it doesn't take a whole lot of time. What figure the part that takes a little bit of time is beyond the download of the app and that you have a passphrase and that you need to attach a wallet to a site. Right. It's the what are, what are those things actually doing? A lot of people yeah. miss the basics, which, you know, your seed phrase is what generates both your your. Um, your public address, right? As well as your, um, your encryption key, your private keys, right? So, you know, it's, it's, and it's not a wallet, it's a signing device, right? You're not storing something on a hardware device. You're not storing something in an app. You're storing something on a chain, which is just code, yeah. right? It's characters, it's encryption. And that's one thing that often gets just glossed over. And, and, and it's really a signing device. If you want to think about it really, a wallet is more of like a pen than it is an actual wallet. Yeah, because we talk about your coins in your wallet, but it's not technically true. And I think just our, uh, you know, our language obfuscates what's happening. Yeah, yeah, it does. And, and it, so th there's some things that kind of started off as terms because it was easier to, to um, teach people by using a term that was a little bit more relatable to the analog yeah. equivalent. But oftentimes those got fumbled and misunderstood. And now it's a point of confusion. But, you know, crypto isn't, it's not really any different than, um, you know, banking or using tech. It's just that you own it as opposed to having a counterparty risk. When you give a centralized um, entity, whether it's a bank or a broker or, um, you know, something that's masquerading as a bank or a broker, you know, if you're anytime you're putting your funds in the trust of someone else, that's counterparty risk. You're you're trusting them to do what's in your best interest, whereas self-custody is you're your own bank. You have the risk yourself. It, it's, it's down to your OPSEC and what you want to do. So the security that you put into it is what you get out of it. Um, every investment carries risk, whether you're holding cash and you're walking in a bad neighborhood yeah. or you put cash in a safe or somewhere in your house and your house burns down or floods, you know, um, there's a counterparty risk to literally everything. You know, when you buy a painting and you don't put the right glass on the frame and it, you know, 
the sun gets to it. You know, there's just things degrade over time or carry diff different risk. So the whole point of preserving your wealth is mitigating risk. How do I, I hold on to this value over time while minimizing the amount mm -hmm. of degradation that happens? I, I, I was expecting you to do a, a Michael Saylor digital energy carries no risk. It's uh, immutable <laughs> and getting into that whole spiel. Um, I try to keep it simple. I try to keep it. I'm trying to keep it simple. Like self self custody really is you don't have to trust somebody else. It's yeah. you trust yourself and your security and how you want to keep something safe. So say these folks who's li who listening now and they're like, great, you've convinced me. I want to go self custody. Where should they start? Uh, first learning what that means learn learn what a learn what a learn what a, an address is so your public address is like an email address it's it's what's on the ledger that people can see on an open ledger and your your um your private keys are associated with your password so think of it encryption right um you've got you've got a lock and you got a key and what you have in 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 your possession is the key to that yeah. lock that's on the blockchain. And in order to prove that you have those assets or that you have that ownership, you have to have the key. So you don't want to ever give anybody your key to your wealth that's on that dis distributed ledger. And Even both if the they address, claim they're from yeah. MetaMask support because they're not from MetaMask They're not support. from MetaMask support. No, they're not. Yeah, yeah so, so you want to make sure that, you know, if you want somebody to send you money or you need to prove that you have money, then you give them... You give them your address and if you have to sign you know something or a transaction to prove that you have that ownership you can that's what that's what crypto gives you the value of doing right it's that 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 proof of ownership um so i'm trying to remember i forgot what the root question was but it was uh oh. but self-custody is basically that it's yeah. you own it and you don't want to give that password away just like you wouldn't want to give away your uh, your password to your email account or to your bank. It's the same thing in self-custody. You don't give away your seed phrase and you secure that and you're doing yourself a favor. It's just, it's more protected because of, again, you're not having counterparty risk. So I know uh, I know you are very active on, on Twitter spaces and various other kind of educational venues. Just a quick plug. I, I do have uh, Obi's uh, Twitter uh, link down in the description. Um, so if you'd like, you know, if any of this sounds interesting and you want someone uh, to trust, you know, I, I definitely trust the education that Obi shares, you know, pop in the link, give him a follow on Twitter, watch when he shows up in spaces. Um, I think you could, you could definitely do worse in terms of finding people to follow and learn from. Um, and, you know, he's one of the best in the space. Yeah. And, and, and the best way that humans learn are through our mistakes. And I've made plenty. So, <laughs> you know, let me let me have if I can let you learn through my own mistakes and failures, you know, the you know, maybe you, you won't repeat them. But uh, yeah. What do they say? Some people act as warnings for others. <laughs> yeah, sure. Sure. But, you know, you, you got to be humble and you got to be authentic. There's there's so many people out there in this space uh, without the regulation or the laws um, where or, or just the people's um, have low IQ around these topics. And so there are people that take advantage of those that that are uh, less educated, um, just like the church took advantage of people that were less educated in medieval times or you know before the printing press or 
you know, uh, you, you know, it, it's the same kind of thing going on now. So I just assume everything's a scam until proven otherwise, and don't trust anything that's not in your own possession. And you'll do you'll do pretty well. Uh, just use those as as a you know verify, don't trust, and and um, that that's what crypto's about. It, it's it's a and that's why we have that's why we have this in the first place. It is to put um, it's to take away that trust or that counterparty risk because all that money is right now really in the world is a shared social construct and system of trust. You trust in that government or that bank to take care of your best interests for you and you pay them for it. But you're really at the mercy of the decisions of another. And that's, again, you've heard me say counterparty risk so much in this. It's really, that's what crypto is. It's eliminating that trust-based system into a trustless system. And that goes back right to the birth of Bitcoin, right? In the shadow of the banking collapse, where all these entities that were trusted, um, you know, one failed, and then two had no repercussions for the failing because we paid them to, to bail them out. And uh, so that that idea of not trusting people, uh, very much inherent in, in a lot of what crypto does. Yes, yep, absolutely. Um, so, you know, D DeFi has exploded, <laughs> CeFi has exploded. Uh, we're now at a situation where uh, I'd say, you know, in terms of fear and greed, uh, we're very much more on the fear side. Uh, we've got people concerned about regulations. Uh, we've got, you know, huge, huge blowups. A lot of people have their money locked up and, and may or may not get any of it back. Um, what do we do from here? Like, how are you charting the, the path forward given, uh, you know, what seems like you've just got wreckage everywhere you look? Yeah, well, it's avoiding altcoins mostly. <laughs> um, <laughs> it's uh, just very simple dollar cost averaging Bitcoin. So I put in a little bit each day, a little bit in each week and just stick with the plan. And over time that, you know, ultimately, if you're if you're buying through when the market's undervalued and when the market's overvalued, if you're consistent about it, it all averages out over time. And that has proven whether it's traditional finance or or crypto or really anything if you if you approach something consistently um you're you're going to probably win out more times than not over the people that are yoloing in at the what they think is the right time and get wrecked right so um investments uh you know in this in the fable of the tortoise and the hare right you want to be the tortoise you want to win in the long run and you slow and steady wins the race and that's what cost averaging is so for me um you know, right now in a time where we're in one of the worst economic climates that we've seen in decades. And, you know, for me, it's I want to make sure that I have purchasing power preserved. And right now the dollar is the strongest of the fiats. And, um, you know, people in, in other areas of the world are are fleeing to the dollar. So the dollar is getting stronger. So right now it's a good time to to have dollars, um, even though it's getting eaten away to inflation. It's still the king of the fiats. Right. It's the king of the shit coins. So, <laughs> um, and then, you know, what am I, what am I trying to do? Well, I don't trust governments and I don't think they're in, out for my best interest. So I convert as much of those fed coupons into Bitcoin as possible so that I have uh, a better representation of storing my time and my, my efforts, my energy over time. And that's what Bitcoin ultimately is for me. Um, and then there's a few speculative type things that I, that I'll, maybe throw a little bit in but right now because everybody's kind of holding on to wealth and not ready to kind of take on that risk right now it's a it's a low risk environment investments aren't doing very well so 
you know, I, I want to buy the fear and hold the things, the stores of value that people are transitioning to, which are dollars and Bitcoin. Anything outside of that, it's going to be a highly regulated uh, stock of a company that builds a product that people need. Because people need things. And if you need <laughs> things, then uh, you can have ownership of the company that produces those things, right? So, and and hey, if they're going to give you a little bit of yield or profit sharing on top of it, all the better. So, you know, I'm looking at I'm looking at equities of companies that build things that are that aren't going anywhere. And I'm looking at Bitcoin and I'm looking at dollar strength and sticking to a plan. And then when the market shifts from extreme fear and it starts getting greedy again, that's when uh, people take the risk to increase and inflate the asset prices. That's when you want to start taking profits and scaling back on your assets so that the, when, the, when the market turns again to the downside, you have the purchasing power to buy things on sale. And that's just a normal financial cycle. So it sounds like a lot of that is just getting back to fundamentals, right? It's, mm -hmm. It seems so simple of people make things other people want and they'll make money doing that, <laughs> like help invest in those people. Um, certain assets have shown uh, resiliency over time and have shown kind of their, their value beyond just being printed out of thin air. Uh, maybe think about those. You mentioned altcoins. Now, is yeah. everything except Bitcoin an altcoin? Are there a yes. couple exceptions? Okay. <laughs> Wait, I yeah. need to ask that again and get the, the, the sound bite. Is everything except Bitcoin and altcoin? Yes, everything except Bitcoin's and altcoin. From a Bitcoiner's mindset, it's Bitcoin and Bitcoin only, right? Um, I, I would say that I classify myself as a Bitcoin mostly. Hmm. Again, if I look at things in terms of storing value over space and time, right? When I go to my job, I'm investing my time and my skill set and I'm earning something for that time and that skill set. And if I'm getting paid in dollars and they're increasing the amount of dollars, they're robbing me of my time. Yeah. So I need to, I need to put those dollars to work in an investment or to an asset that's going to hold my energy and time the most over time and space, right? Like I need to, I need to, I need to save it and hold on to it in, in an investment vehicle um, that ultimately will grow, right? So, and scarcity is really what you want because the less things there are in this world that are desirable, the more people want it, which means it, it goes back to supply and demand. Again, fundamentals. If there's not a lot of supply and there's a lot of demand, it means it's going to have a high price. So I'm, I'm looking for scarce stores of value that I can move over time that should hold. So, you know, that's what Bitcoin that's they're not making any more land really right you know so real estate's not a bad thing to hold on to uh companies that have stood the test of time that are building products and continuing to innovate um you know those are going to those are going to be around for a pretty decent amount of time those are good investment um so yeah that's uh just the fundamentalist way of looking at it so there's there's uh, you know uh, talk that bitcoin is sound money right? that often that phrase comes up but what could be better than sound money, but ultrasound money? How do you think about the Ethereum community's claims that Ethereum is now ultrasound money? It's deflationary. It has utility. Um, and, you know, naturally, they it's going to the moon. How do you respond to that as an asset that they believe is more valuable than Bitcoin? Um, advertising? <laughs> <laughs> I think Ethereum has proven that they change things frequently. 
and that uh, they change their narrative frequently over time. Mm -hmm. And they try to adapt or evolve their technology because they know it's no longer the superior tech, right? They, they formed Ethereum because they thought it was superior to Bitcoin. Now you've got other layer ones that are far superior to Ethereum. And so they're coming up with marketing gimmicks to get people to continue to buy in. And so one of the things that they've done is they've changed the economics model to lower the inflation rate. It's still inflationary. It's just less inflationary than it was. And they call that ultrasound, but really it's, it's just a marketing term. <laughs> um, the, the aspect of ultrasound is that they're, they're saying, Hey, over time, our asset can become more scarce. So it's going to ultimately become more valuable over Bitcoin. Whereas Bitcoin is very much, you know, math is law. And uh, we're not, you know what the code is and you know what the having cycle is, you know what the supply is. And you don't have to make it any more complicated in terms of a store of value. Sure, you can build up the stack and build things that are useful to people, like addressing the scalability or the smart contracting aspects with something yeah. like Lightning or with Taro. But, um, you know, the layer threes and fours could also go on top of Bitcoin and you could scale vertically into that uh that new that new system so ethereum is kind of like well shoot if things are going to be side chains or scale then how do we turn our layer one into a store value like bitcoin and then that's where this marketing term comes in there have been a few folks who've um proposed the thesis that over time you know over the short to medium term uh, all block space is essentially going to uh, become exceedingly cheap as people just spin up new blockchains to be able to uh, handle it does that mean that essentially every layer one just it's a race to the bottom, a race to zero? I think that for the most part, that most of, of crypto right now is research and development phase of a new technology. And that what's mostly going on is it's companies trying to find um, really a use. There isn't really anything you know, beyond the immutable public ledger and, and money that is Bitcoin, there hasn't really been a need for blockchain that has met, that you know, that exists that isn't already in like the Web2 world. You know what I'm saying? Like a company making a product that people can use and scale much quicker. Um, Web3 or crypto is just effectively right now trying to evolve Web2. There hasn't been that, oh, yes, that makes sense. That has to be on a ledger let's go build it there. Um, and so right now it's like, it's tech experiments. Each one of these layer ones is a tech experiment of which one has the best technology, which one can scale. And then ultimately um, when people decide to bring their real world value onto a ledger system, that they're hoping that those companies and that those products choose their network. So that's really kind of how I view it, right? All of these other layer ones are just, they're they're searching for a solution and they're hoping that their solution is the one that gets picked. They want to be the TCP IP of mm. web three, right? They want to be the WWW of web three. They want to be the SMTP of web three. And they're hoping that we, that their tech stack is the one that gets chosen. Is there any particular uh, project you think is closest to, to being the one that's chosen right now? I think that it there. I think that there needs to be some level of interoperability. 
Um, so I like what um, I like what Cosmos is doing, and I like what Elrond is doing. And um, Elrond I, it has the edge to me being sharded. Is that you have your meta chain, but you have you can have an individual app or business chain or side chain, you know, doing its own thing, um, sharing the same resources of of the uh, the main network stack and settling on the meta chain. Cardano's kind of going down the same route, but a different technology. Um, you know, Ethereum, you could argue, is going down the same route using a, a different technology with the side chains and, and layer twos. They're all trying to get there. Right now, Ethereum has the biggest market share by far. But in terms of the tech stack, being able to spin up a commodity chain or an app chain or something, it's really easy to do on Cosmos. It's really easy to do on something like an Elrond, something that has multiple different program languages um, that are supported. But, uh, you know, Polkadot's trying to do the same thing. There's all the, all these different competing businesses trying to do the same or similar thing, just approaching it from slightly different ways. Um, so right now, if I had to, if I had to say, you know, which, which one is the, the one that's going to compete with Ethereum the most, I'd probably, I probably lean towards Cosmos right now. Interesting. Do you um, pay any attention to, uh, anything coming out of TFL or what Doe's saying lately in Luna 2, or is that just all completely in the past? It's mostly in the past because I think a lot of the really good development that was happening on Terra have moved on to their own chains like Kujera yeah. or or um, are looking at developing on things like Polygon or Kadena or Elrond. Like they've, they've kind of just said, hey, let's go look and see what else is out there. Yeah, that, that's fair. Are there any coins right now that are in, you know, perhaps the top 10 or the top 20 that you you would say with some degree of confidence that it doesn't deserve to be there. And there's a high likelihood that in two, three, four years, it's probably not going to be there. <laughs> um, I mean, that could be, a, that could be all of them. <laughs> <except for Bitcoin. laughs> We're all uh, going to zero folks, pack it up. <laughs> no, I mean, it really could. I mean, it, it really depends on, you know, the U.S. market is so influential in, you know, 70 to 80%, depending on the, the season or, or cycle that we're in yeah. of all money and trade goes through the Federal Reserve. What happens in the United States in terms of influence around the world? You know, our biggest export is financial services and the dollar, right? Our second largest export is the industrial military complex. So we've got the money and we've got the military might. And so we also drive a lot of the legislation and the rules that go along yeah. with those products. So what happens in the United States largely is going to be, that's the head of the dog. We don't want the tail to move away, <laughs> to move the dog, right? You want the dog move where the head is going. So <laughs> I, well, I think I, in our case, I, I'd love for Bitcoin the tail to wag the dog. but <laughs> Yeah, exactly. So, but, but um, if the, if they're going to come in too heavy handed with legislation yeah. and, um, that could be a big problem for anything, especially it's not proof of work or, or something that wasn't a fair launch is going to be very problematic in terms of being able to um, develop and uh, have people kind of adopt it. I think if you're, if you're deemed a security or you were a, a not a fair launch uh, network, and I think it's very easy for people to take their business from one network to another. And so if Ethereum is deemed a security and, you know, it's already from a fees perspective, a big pain in the butt to use. Uh, it's not the best tech stack. 
how long is it before a lot of that development moves to other chains? Yeah. Yeah. I uh, think that's, that's a reasonable concern, right? Legislation yeah. will, will uh, exacerbate some of the, the other failings that maybe certain chains have. Yeah. So uh, that's kind of what I think. I think, I think you got the money and the decentralized uh, secure network. That's Bitcoin. Like it already has it. So you can build vertically on top of Bitcoin, all these different yeah. things like scalable peer-to-peer -peer money. That's the, that's the Lightning Network, right? You could, you could build smart contracts and advanced NFT platforms on top of Bitcoin in a layer two. You can, you can take uh, you know, traditional companies from Web2 and, and put them in layers three and four on top of the, the tech stacks of Bitcoin's layer one and two. So I'm leaning more and more these days into the people that value freedom, liberty, decentralization, that it'll just vertically build on top of the Bitcoin stack. And that the existing world will go into a layer one that's probably fair launch that has a better technology because mm -hmm. the different apps and developers will just migrate between chains for what's the best for that purpose. Uh, now, I was listening to you as you were talking about Bitcoin as sort of a place for uh, freedom. Now, there are a group of folks who would argue very strongly that actually it's not. And Bitcoin has, you know, the ability to be, you know, fairly transparent. Obviously, that's the blockchain. And along with that, uh, sanctions could ensure that your Bitcoin is not strictly fungible. Um, so how do you think about those particular risks as you, you know, you're a Bitcoin mostly, as, as you mentioned. How do you think about those risks uh, to something that is largely public, like a Bitcoin, in comparison to other, you know, coins which don't disclose that information? Yeah, you, you cut out for me a little bit there, but you said something about disclosure and Bitcoin. Oh, yes, yeah, sorry. I'll, I'll just rewind quickly. So, you know, everything on Bitcoin blockchain is transparent. Uh, governments have shown that they, they would like to sanction it. Um, recently, I think they tried to sanction uh, Russian wallets uh, who had Bitcoin in them and those coins become tainted and essentially not fungible. Um, how do you think about those particular risks as you're doubling down on, on Bitcoin as the technology versus other solutions that perhaps could, you could argue, provide more freedom and more liberty? Yeah, so this would kind of take us into the into the privacy chain discussion, right? Or the the privacy coins of having a, uh, um, a net, you know, a ledger that's not uh, public by default. Yeah. But, you know, with Bitcoin, you, you have it, it is it is immutable. It is public. Um, what they try to do, they can't stop Bitcoin from happening and those transactions from happening or sanction those transactions. Right. What they can do is make the people that are trying to off ramp off of that into something else a problem. So, I, you know, Bitcoin in and of itself, I, I mean, I, I don't think they can stop it at this point. They just make it harder to get on and off. That's really the attack vector that they would use. Um, does that answer that question? Yeah, so it sounds like you're, you're not particularly worried about it from an investment perspective. Um, and even from a use perspective, uh, you know, what I'm hearing is it'll be on the off-ramps and the on-ramps, but because they can't stop Bitcoin, perhaps there's other applications that will be built on top of it to mitigate any concerns here. Yeah, because yeah, all that Bitcoin is, right? It's a, it's a decentralized public ledger. It's a decentralized, you know, computer network, right? So you have, you have Bitcoin, the digital asset, which is the, the money or the store of value. But you've also got this decentralized computer network run on proof of work with a high Nakamoto coefficient that, you know, is global and would be extremely difficult to take down. Um, yeah. I think governments have run studies and seen how 
easy it would be to try <laughs> to take down something like Bitcoin. And I think they've largely said not really happening, right? Yeah, I mean, there's something beautiful about it because it's not just an economic takedown. As you saw with, with Luna, right? You can do shenanigans with money and take down proof of stake in that in that way. Or, you know, in, in this case, the seniorage model. Uh, but with Bitcoin, you actually need physical goods. And so you would yeah. need to, uh, you know, stack ant miners or whatever you were doing or, you know, raid the Bitcoin mining facility in some country in order to even stand a chance to take it down. The way the way that you affect Bitcoin is not necessarily through sanctioning or trying to stop people from non-ramping and off-ramping, really, because it's peer-to-peer. -peer. You can't stop. If if someone has a sanctioned wallet and I decide to to trade with them, I mean, I can do it. They can't stop that. So, you know, um, what they can do, I guess, is, is uh, you know, the main security vulnerabilities, because there's no perfect network. There's no perfect system. There's flaws in, in literally everything. So there is no there is no perfect blockchain. There is no perfect network. There is no perfect country. There's nothing now, in this now, world. Now, hold on now. <laughs> yeah, I think Texas yeah. is about as perfect as a country can get. <laughs> if it wasn't part of the union, perhaps. <laughs> <laughs> I think we both just made it to a list somewhere. <laughs> <laughs> but, yeah, so... Yeah, I mean, I if they want to attack Bitcoin, what do you what, what do you do? You got to get hash. All right, so where are you going to get hash from? Well, you got to get the you you got to go after the manufacturers of the equipment, right? You got to go after the ASICs and the chips and and trying to um, come up with the the computing power to take control. And with how decentralized it is right now, with um, both in terms of the hash and you know the coins, you know, there's. There's enough liquidity and coins circulating around, especially when you break it into sats versus, you know, full coins that yeah. it, I don't I don't see how they easily attack that. Now, there's the whole argument of against, you know, um, quantum computing and, you know, what that would mean in terms of breaking encryption and can the difficulty uh, adjust and, and the mining adjust to also adapt quantum. That's a legitimate argument, um, but it's probably really, really expensive and far off right now. And, I don't and think Bitcoin, it's as close as people think. Would be the least of our worries, right? They'd, they'd be able to hack into every single bank, uh, you know, potentially military installations and nuclear codes. So there'll be chaos if that ever happens. Um, yeah, yeah. So, yeah, so I, I'm not, you know, I think that it's more along the lines of they'll try to get people onto a central bank digital currency on a network they feel that they can significantly influence. Yeah. And uh, and then go through the the that as the attack vector is what I think governments would do. If I was a somebody working for the government and I wanted to disrupt crypto, that's that's the nefarious type of thing I'd be doing. Central bank digital currency gaining enough of the the capital stake in a network to be mm -hmm. able to make governance decisions, which basically is just a, a replicant of the existing system on a new technology. Yeah, perhaps with some extra controls the government can use to be a little uh, more nefarious in whatever they'd like to do. Yeah, yeah. And that's, you know, and that'll be a question too. Like, would they do launch central bank digital currencies? How, you know, is that going to be private? Is it going to be public? If it's private, you know, you know, what, how do you take that, that CBDC to crypto or can you, you know, mm -hmm. or are you forced to use it only on the ways they want you to? Well, of course, it's going to be forced, right? Yeah. They're not going to want to allow that to be um, 
proliferated. You know, part of the reason that a lot of people are arguing right now, maybe not a lot, but some people are arguing right now that the crypto market is down is because of the risk that stable coins uh, present to uh, the United States, you know, control or the Fed's control specifically over the dollar. And you have dollars on other networks and you have um, economic collapse like you're seeing in some of these sovereigns, um, you know, the, the Euro, the pound sterling, you know, all these different fiats are getting closer and closer to one-to-one. So when things are trading closer to closer to one-to-one with the dollar, and now you've got a technology of the dollar that can be widely distributed amongst decentralized networks, that's a legitimate concern to the United States. Is it a concern to the United States or is it a concern to everyone else? Because it feels like you take Circle and USDC, the US still has their, their thumb on the off button in a sense because Circle is a US company. And now they're exporting dollars as essentially the standard means of exchange uh, everywhere, even into the cryptoverse. It's both. It's a concern to everybody in the interim and until they can come up with their own way of, of printing their own uh, fiat shit coins <laughs> and, and, and then forcing people to use the program at, program at Matability and lack of privacy that would exist within that system, like what China's doing. But that would be, yeah, definitely a concern um, long term. And the dollar, you know, the United States doesn't want to lose their most important export, which is the dollar and the financial system, the SWIFT, the sanctions. They, there's massive political power there that happens. You have to play by a fairer set of rules. And when you don't have the contillion effect of being able to print as much money as you want to or contract as much money as you want to, there's significant um, national security concerns and, and prosperity concerns of that government, you know, really existing because people would push bets, push, you know, there'd be a revolution, right? So really the, the money is the, you know, throughout human history, right? You've got things that control people. It's education, religion, and money or a combination mm-hmm. thereof. And right now the world is largely controlled through money. So those who have the, the, their pulse on the money, the, the system is highly centra- uh, central right now, like the SWIFT system and the dollar and the Federal Reserve. And anything that, that, that challenges those things challenges the world power status. And you would have to come up with a new world order, a new world system, um, a fairer system, right? Not backed yeah. by governments and, there's, and their um, money printing capabilities, but real sound hard money. And this is why I put money into Bitcoin is it's it's peer to peer money that is not controlled by the government. And so when the governments inevitably don't get out of their own way and money becomes more volatile as we progress through time here, um, they're going to have to be forced to continue to monkey with the the uh, interest rates and the supply of money and the contraction of money in the system. And we're already seeing it right now where it's, you know, it's really starting to become unstable. It just hasn't hit. It's hit high inflation, but it's not hyperinflationary. It's the step before things become hyperinflationary. Which hopefully we'll never get to um, because that that results in a lot of suffering for a lot of people. Yes. Yeah. And yeah, uh, they're, they're not on a good course right now. If you look at the, if you look at the money supply charts and the, in the central bank's balance sheets, it's, uh, it's very alarming what's happened in the last five years. Do you, do you um, spend any time thinking about kind of the geopolitics of a lot of this? 
you know, I think there's just been a couple other uh, Gulf states that applied to join the the, the BRICS uh, coalition, um, which I think is Brazil, Russia, India, China, South Africa, if I recall correctly. Um, I think Iran, China, China, South Africa. Yeah. Is uh, Iran Iran, part of it too? Um, yeah, we should we should Google and see. But, oh, okay. Okay. <laughs> but I think it's, you know, for me, it's interesting to, to look at all the sanctions placed on Russia. Russia does have goods that we all want in, in terms of oil. Um, and there's also a lot of com uh, countries that are unhappy with the, the dominance of the dollar. Um, so I wonder if you spend any time thinking about it from a geopolitical perspective or more just kind of a macro perspective in the U.S. I think they're kind of one and the same, really. Uh, we're in a global mm -hmm. economy. The, the macro picture is a global picture. You have certain countries that are linchpins in the, in the overall macro view, right? The United States with the dollar and the industrial military complex. We are the world police. We are the world bank. <laughs> really. And, and uh, Russia, like you said, when it comes to raw materials and uh, defense of, you know, mi some military influence, or le less so now than they were maybe historically. But, you know, when it comes to raw materials and, and goods that the, that the world needs, you know, they're going to have a huge portion of it, as well as China, their neighbor. Now, China is the world's manufacturer, right? They're the, they're mm -hmm. the ones that run the factories and the cheap labor, and they, and they, they pump out the goods, right? And then you've got the Middle East, which is largely, you know, the, the energy sector, right? Where with oil and the exports of oil. And, and so everybody is playing their, their part, except for Europe. Europe is, you know, <laughs> a relic. Uh, they don't really export a lot of things of value other than culture and maybe some food, you know, but so, so you have these, these, like I said, linchpins in the system, um, and yeah, it's all it's all connected because no one country can be self-sustaining. There are materials and expertise that exist in other areas of the world that you may not even have it within your own borders. And even if you did, the expense of producing those goods and selling them to your citizens, they, people just wouldn't even want them. Yeah. So you, there has to be this global system of commerce and trade and interconnectedness. And the dollar has been uh, an issue. It's but the treaties and the military might backing that dollar and the energy agreements that that create the petrodollar system with the the agreement that with Saudi Arabia when we left the gold standard, we shifted from the gold standard to a petrodollar system. And now effectively money is tied to consumable energy as opposed to as in and, and backed by military power, prowess, as opposed to backed by uh, sound money and economic principles. Hmm. It's very interesting how you kind of lay out the different aspects of the world and how everyone has something that's backing their, their power and, and perhaps the currency is a reflection of how valuable that actually is in the world and, and how that, that power can be uh, projected. Yes. Yeah, it's, a, it's, it's absolutely, it's a weapon. You know, in, in intelligence and um, what people are specialized in matters greatly. You know, in, in right now, China and the United States is... They're, they're in a battle for, you know, artificial intelligence and AI and computing. And the United States, you know, even though Russia, you know, uh, China is the, the world's manufacturer, you know, the, the intellectual property, uh, the ability to, to, to uh, affect the silicon side of things and, and the computing power is still highly concentrated within the U.S.'s dominance. And, and that's where a lot of this back and forth is going on between the two countries. It's not just a it's not just the BRICS side of the thing, but that's them trying to assert some additional influence into an alternative 
that gives them a little bit more power in the in the the power scale, right? How does all of that affect the crypto market going forward, or even at least Bitcoin going forward? The the well, um, how does it affect Bitcoin? That's a good question, because you do need to have hardware developed. You do need to have uh, miners uh, become more efficient in in their energy usage, especially as we go through additional halvings and it becomes um, sometimes cost prohibitive to continue to do the mining. Um, so, you know, from a chips perspective and, and a, you know, a technology perspective, it's really important that we continue to um, iterate there. Um, what government should be doing, if I, in, if I was in charge of the United States or any country, really, as a matter of national security, I'd be, I'd be Bitcoin mining. I would be trying to get as much hash and influence and part of those sats as possible. Um, because, you know, if the, if we do shift to a system of, of new money um, as fiat start to collapse, you know, there's probably there's likely two candidates, right? It's gold and it's and it's Bitcoin. So, all right. Well, Bitcoin's superior to gold in almost every way. So it, it really comes down to um, which which countries are hedged in those particular two assets in terms of when the system unravels and falls apart and we establish a new system, those who have gold and Bitcoin are most likely to be um, the, the ones um, swinging the biggest stick at the, at the table right? <laughs> uh, of, of negotiating of, of kind of that new world order and which countries fall into which categories in terms of yeah. the manufacturer and the raw goods and the, the banking and the military. So you'd um, you'd say that perhaps China's move away from Bitcoin and banning Bitcoin mining is potentially negative from their ability to continue to project power in the world long term. Yeah, absolutely. Especially if, if it comes to the point where, again, so much of the world's trade, it, it goes through it goes through the dollar. And you need to have a good relationship between the U.S. and China because they're well over 40 percent of the world's trade if not close to 50%. Yeah. So uh, it's one of those situations where it's like, okay, China's like, all right, so here's a hypothetical, right? So say China says, all right, we're only going to accept the yen now, or we're only going to accept gold now, or we're only going to accept Bitcoin for our goods. That's effectively what the United States had been doing for decades. Hmm. They had an agreement when we left the gold standard that Saudi Arabia would only accept dollars for oil. Right. And then thus the petrodollar system was born. So now, you know, and then there was a um, you got uh, OFAC and right. And you have all these different arrangements that that are around the dollar and the Bretton Woods agreement after World War Two, you know, the dollar used to be backed by gold and the dollar was a proxy for countries being able to more easily trade, uh, you know, a liquid representation of gold. Um, so now you're kind of moving into a new system. Right. Where we're where we're at a petrodollar energy system and some of the countries are saying, hey, you've pushed too hard in terms of sanctions and you have disproportionately um, taken advantage of the rest of us. And we're the ones that, with the things of value. We're the ones with the labor. Yeah. We're the ones with the raw materials that you need. And we're not going to accept your recklessness from a government um, perspective in terms of how you run your country and how you're using the the dollar as a weapon against us. So now we're only going to accept gold or we're only going to accept Bitcoin. 
then now the balance of power is starting to shift away from dollars and then the dollar starts to collapse. Interesting. So, so in that world, you know, even though Bitcoin mining has moved largely to the US and, and we're creating more of the asset and having more of the asset onshore, China has the advantage in that they're producing things they sell. Um, so they would ask, could potentially ask for payment in an asset that is harder than they're currently getting and kind of even the playing field as it were. Yeah, yeah. It's almost kind of like governance power and proof of stake. You know? <laughs> who has the most, the most power can kind of use that governance to their advantage. You know, it, it becomes highly political. Um, whereas, you know, proof of work, it's, it's the energy you put into it is what produces the coins, right? So either, either you have to trade something of value to earn coins or you have to produce hash to produce coins. Mm. So though the United States now might be the dominant player in hash, it doesn't mean that China couldn't pivot or some other low cost energy country uh, couldn't pivot. Imagine if the Middle East starts doing mining off of flaring. Or off of, yeah. you know, you know, hey, we're going to, instead of producing so much oil, we're going to start, you know, using the oil to make, to mine Bitcoin. And then I, mean, it I guess a, at some point it's what's cheapest to get, you know, the equivalent value from. Is, is it cheaper for me to yeah. create some goods and sell them or is it cheaper for me to mine some Bitcoin? Right. Yeah. So, so that's the, you know, the, the, the purest form of money, which is, which is energy, right? It's the goods that the energy presents produces what money is it's not the actual medium of exchange or currency that has the value it's the actual goods themselves and a lot mm. of people forget that they think it's the greenback that makes the difference it's not it's it's what you buy with the money that it, you know it's with that currency that is the real money yeah you're kind of reminding me a bit i don't know if you've heard of something called the kardashev scale uh, where they have different types of uh, civilizations based on how much energy they consume um and I guess a, a type one designation being given to species that are able to harness all the energy from an, their available star, right? And then it goes out from there in terms of the galaxy, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but it all, you know, comes down to energy as, you know, a little bit of a sci-fi, perhaps a little bit of a futurist view on energy being the means by which we evaluate civilizations. Yeah. I, I mean, that's, that kind of makes sense, right? I mean, we are energy. We're, 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 we're atoms, you know, we're, we're stardust. We're that's all that we are. We're we're just all, ever moving atoms is what we are. So was that a subtle yeah. way to say cosmos is a good spot to to get into crypto? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I mean, it has its own issues, but yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Let me just pause um, and say hi to a few folks who popped in chat. It's, it's been a little while, but uh, shalom. Let's go gaming. Um, Baroness is here. Who's <laughs> saying hey? We should say gaming. Um, and then Brubaka man, if he's still here, uh, is asking about LKMX. So maybe that's a topic we can we can bounce from the macro view of the entire world in geopolitics and zoom in now to Multiverse X and Elrond, and in particular okay. LKMX. Um, and so I don't know how closely you've been following what's been happening with LKMX. Uh, curious your thoughts on the transition and you know what you plan to do. Yeah, um, so I've been participating in in the Meyer exchange uh, for really since it launched and as a liquidity provider. And I always knew that the first iteration of the exchange and the, and the MEX token in, in particular would be um, an alpha stage, if you will, an <laughs> alpha beta before yeah. it's ready for prime time. Um, I was hoping that when it came to the conclusion of year one, 
that they would just say, hey, our 8 trillion tokens is enough. And and we're just going to now do a focus on that becoming deflationary. Um, unfortunately, that's not the model they went with. And they've gone with the, the model of trying to gamify the system to try to get people to be interested in providing and keeping liquidity on, on the platform. And see... I think they've done it, some creative things in doing so, but I'm concerned that it, it creates a little bit of Ponzanomics into, you know, into the yeah. system. And you know, I don't think it would pass regulatory scrutiny. So going back to our regulatory perspective is like, if we get legislative clarity and things start getting enforced and there has to be registered securities, is that going to mm. cut people out? Like from, from the US maybe, but Europe and others could participate. So I'm concerned that the amount of assets trading and volume trading on on the on the ecosystem of the exchange are not quite enough to be sustainable to the tokenomics model with that highly inflationary um, token in the energy system. So I have some pretty big reservations about it. They've only burned like less than one percent of the supply this year through through uh, transaction fees. So I think moving to the form of energy and people wanting to unlock and burn more tokens would be um, beneficial. But instead of doing that, what they're doing is redistributing the tokens. They're still going to keep mm -hmm. inflating, but then they're just redistributing to the people that are, that are in there. So again, it, it, it's, it's kind of a, it's an action-based rule, uh, um, greater fool game. Interesting. There definitely does seem to be a lot of game theory behind how you'd approach it. Um, I think the one mm -hmm. thing that I, I do appreciate is they've they've taken you know today you can trade the LKMX on secondary markets, and they've taken that that trading essentially and that haircut that people would take, and and rather than kind of giving it to the secondary market or the people doing the trades, uh, they're having it be inherent in the system in the energy withdrawal fees and and distribute that. So at least for me that seems yeah. more positive, uh, closer to the intention that they had originally um, that they perhaps didn't fully express in in the smart contracts. Yeah, I, yeah, I'm I'm kind of bearish on exchange tokens in general, mm. um, because a lot of times these exchange tokens exist to offset impermanent loss and to attract people that wouldn't otherwise be liquidity providers to an economy scale um, to allow basically liquidity to happen on a network, and so I think being a liquidity provider is usually a deep pockets game. Um, when you start to introduce like a whole bunch of people putting small amounts of liquidity in to maybe chase yield. It's just instant yeah. red flags, you know, because of my experience of, you know, yield chasing doesn't usually play out in crypto. Um, and so for me, it's one of those things where I went into it thinking either they're going to create a system where it's going to become highly deflationary post year one, or it's going to be able to be used for lending or synthetic trading assets, which, which would increase the, the, the activity on the exchange. Or, or you get kind of the alternative, which is what we have. So in general, I'm, I'm not very excited about where they're going with version two. Um, it's not the direction I would have gone. And I'm going to stick with my initial game plan, which is, you know, as my tokens unlocked, I'll convert them to coins. I'll convert them to the store of value. Um, Interesting. It doesn't mean that I'm not going to continue to provide liquidity and earn locked mechs in version two and then have those locked up with battery rewards because that'll be a farming basket for me. But my initial thesis of, of you know, coins over tokens and um, 
initially putting money into the the exchange were to ultimately get more e-gold. So I'm going to stick with that. I want the scarce assets, not the assets that continue to inflate. For, for those of you who've watched my um, previous videos about LKMX and the various different strategies, I would uh, I would say that Obi-Wan is a brown bear <laughs> in terms of the different kind of bears that we talked about. Um, and so it's just interesting because you have a, a slightly different thesis than I do for, for this particular aspect. And um, yeah, it'll be interesting to see a year from now how it all works out. Um, I guess well, I'm... Go ahead, sorry. That not having that transferability is a is another problem, because now you have an illiquid exchange token on it on that is based on people leaving money on the platform to generate yield in a long term game. There's no guarantees the exchange or people will be bringing businesses and there'll be activity happening on the exchange. You're just you're betting that in the long run you believe that the the network and the exchange itself is going to attract development and liquidity and if it doesn't then you're basically just being a bag holder yeah you're the exit liquidity so for me i don't want to be the exit liquidity like i i want to i want to take the 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 year plus worth of, of farming assets put that into the store of value i'm, I'm realistic and that's probably going to be less than what i originally hoped it would because of the the high inflation but I, I still want to take that money that I earned and actually store it as money, which is e-gold, yeah. right? Um, and it doesn't mean, like I said, that I won't generate more LKMX and have some some tokens or liquidity pools on there that are going to generate more going forward. I just don't want to be holding that exit liquidity over time with an uncertainty. The other thing, too, is that with it being so highly inflationary, if I ever wanted to get back in the game, it's not like I can't take that e-gold and convert it in a more exchangeable rate into more LKMX in the future anyway. So for me, it, it it's always about coins over tokens, and it's always about storing my time and energy as most efficiently as possible, and that has to be in the form of scarce assets. I love it. I love it. Um, how do you think about um, eGold and LKMix from the entire ecosystem perspective? Do you think eGold can thrive without LKMix also thriving? eGold can thrive without locking. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Eagle's the medium of exchange of the whole entire network. And so, and it's also, and as such, it's also the gas for the entire network. So every time there's a trade made on the exchange, it's not LockMex that's being traded, it's Eagle. That's the network fee. Okay. So right? your thesis essentially could be let me, I'm going to push you a bit here in that um, if the exchange itself does not succeed, because uh, I think if the exchange succeeds, there's a chance LKMX is succeeding as well, along with it. But if the exchange doesn't succeed, you're saying that uh, a Multiverse X, the Elrond network, could still uh, essentially succeed without the exchange activity at all. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, because, I mean, I mean, there's other exchanges already on the Elrond network that aren't the, yeah. the X exchange that you could find the other ESDTs on. And so there's, and that's a whole other thing too about the Elrond exchange and the locking of the MEX is, you know, now that now, and I would expect this to happen, actually, now that they're wanting to lock the token and make it illiquid and highly inflationary, that there will be competition of people wanting to build mm -hmm. competing exchanges to come on and have a more freer system of exchanging those tokens. I think that's that's a good counter. How do those other exchanges uh, incentivize liquidity? I Well... So that's a good question. And 
I think it goes back to that real yield scenario, a la like an Astroport, where you incentivize people to buy your token and to stake your token and, and share of revenue profits of the activity on the exchange, as opposed to seeking the high yield of an inflationary token that's minted out of thin air. If anyone from Astroport is listening, I would love if you bring Astroport to the Multiverse X network. Uh, you would have a huge fan, at least one. Me too. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but that's what I think, though. Like, if you're going to convince somebody to buy an exchange token, there needs to be a value accrual mechanism of real yield and, and benefit for owning it. And so for me, Astroport, of all the designs of the DEXs that are out there, or maybe Spectrum for the, you know, um, also that was on the Terra, those had really good tokenomics. Same thing with Prism, right? Yeah. And there's built-in demand to owning those tokens to where you would get an exchange of the trading fees on the platform. And then the other fees that were happening on the platform would go back into buying that token. So that there was always buy side demand for the exchange token. And there was always revenue value exchanged. Now Elrond does this to a very small degree. The, the, there's a sliver of burning that happens and there's a, and there's a sliver of, of, uh, of a network fee or exchange fee that happens that goes back to holders. But it's such a small percentage of the pie because of the high inflation rate that it ultimately doesn't make a difference. It's like, it's like throwing a pebble in a lake. You throw, <laughs> you, you can barely see it or feel it or hear it. Right. And yet it creates something beautiful for that moment in time. <laughs> sure. But, <laughs> sure. But yeah. So, I mean, I'm, if I would really challenge the Elrond team or the, the multiverse X team to go back to their, the drawing board, on their exchange model and say, you know, how can we create real yields off of this? Um, how can we incentivize people to bring their coins and liquidity to this platform? Cause just in highly, you know, going for something that's highly inflationary for eight years with the, the theory that it might become more deflationary. Well, now you've minted so many of these damn tokens that, you know, they're a dime a dozen and they don't really hold a whole lot of value and they're not being used in liquidity pairs. They're not being used in synthetics trading. They're not being used in lending, which was the original promise when it was initially pitched. And so those things haven't come to fruition. So because, because all of the things that excited me about LKMX haven't come to fruition, I'm relatively, mm -hmm. I guess you could say bearish on the token itself. I'm bullish on Elrond as a network and as a, you know, a, a core um, network and tech stack and development that's happening on it, I just don't necessarily think that the exchange is um, completely viable because you, even, even in these NFT projects or, or these other um, exchanges, you can still transfer value and create value outside of the, the exchange itself. So it's almost like the exchange exists more or less for the Elrond team to do marketing than it does to benefit the users of the network. That's interesting. I think we'll have to see where some of the projects like Hatom Protocol shake out. They've talked about having Mex. Now I'm not sure if yeah. LKMEX will be a collateral that you could use. That would be kind of interesting in the system. I don't, I don't think there's any way that LKMEX will be because it's not transferable, but Mex will be. And so Hatom is kind of filling that, that, um, that void that the, the core exchange is not meeting which is the lending. Yeah, I, I definitely wish they'd come out with something like Hadam 
six months ago. I feel like there was a missed opportunity mm -hmm. there. Um, I love this quote from Antonio, so I'm going to pop it on the screen. I think it's relevant perhaps to e-gold versus LKMX. <laughs> he says, I went from investing in Shitoshis to investing in Satoshis. <laughs> yeah, love it. Great. <laughs> <laughs> perhaps that's a message from our discussion today is uh, more Satoshis, less Shitoshis. <laughs> Um, so we've and we've talked about a lot of things. I, I, you know, I, I do want to respect your time as well. I could go on and on. Um, but as we're, you know, thinking about coming to a close, uh, the market is tough. The environment is tough. There's there's a lot of people who are, you know, hurting a lot, either having lost a lot of money or just feeling that fear. Um, what would you say to folks who are in that that moment and really struggling, perhaps thinking about getting out of crypto altogether? Uh, what would you counsel them with? Yeah, I would, I would just say, if you look at market cycles, financial market cycles and tech adoption cycles, we're in the trough of a financial cycle and we're at the early stages of a technology adoption cycle. So if you zoom out and look at the grand scale of things and you think that you think that uh, that the ledger technology that crypto provides or the store of value promises that that it provides are valuable. Um, and you look at where large money and institutions and governments are focusing their attention. It seems very clear that that it's here to stay and it's a matter of time before those adoption cycles take root. So what you should do in a, in a situation like this is continue to educate yourself and learn about the concepts that we're talking about. If, if some of these concepts were um, over your head or, or you know, you, hey, I'd like to learn more about what he was talking about, then that's what you should be doing in this environment is learning. Um, and then, you know, Look at the fear and greed index. When things are fearful, you, you the saying is you want to buy when others are fearful and, you know, sell when other people are greedy. You want to be contrarian. You don't want to follow the herd. You want to be the one that is, um, you know, taking advantage of those emotions and the human psychology that comes into uh, the gambling and speculative side of investment. So if you believe in the fundamentals and the foundation of education as a base, what you would learn probably through that, ex that exploration is that right now when things are at their, their um, most vulnerable and, and, uh, and scariest time is usually when you want to be putting money and capital in. But you do have to have a time preference, a low time preference, meaning that you're willing to wait the long game for those adoption cycles to uh, take hold. Um, you have to be aware that, you know, when you're putting money away, that it's something you could afford to lose, that you're willing to wait it out and see it through. Um, if you're a high time preference trader, that means that you're looking for quick profits in and out and you're not willing to wait something through. Um, that's absolutely not the right time to be doing any kind of buying right now because the market's going down and you're most likely just going to lose your money. But if you're a low time preference person, it's a, it's a wonderful opportunity if you believe in the future of what the technology provides. Awesome. I think that's a perfect way to end the show, Obi. Uh, thank you so much for the conversation. I really deeply enjoyed it. Uh, you're one of the people in the crypto space that I consider a friend. I feel blessed to be part of you know the community that, that you've helped establish and to be able to learn from you and learn from your experience that, that you've had, uh, you know, both professionally, as well as the, the depth of investigation you've done in crypto. So thank you so much for sharing that with us. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks, Vanessa. And happy to come back and talk anytime.
Yeah, I'm sure there'll be new new happenings, new things going on. Uh, as always, if you've enjoyed uh, this particular conversation, do all the YouTube things, uh, like, comment, subscribe. If there's another button that pops up, click that as well. I think I'm supposed to tell you to click the notifications button too, so do that. <laughs> and uh, thank you. And we'll see you back next week. We've got a fantastic episode with the folks from uh, Calc Finance who are building some exciting stuff on top of the Kajira network to allow you to dollar cost average in, in a decentralized fashion. So that'll be exciting to jump into. See you all later.